is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Well, I want to say good morning to everybody in this room and hi to everybody at all of our campuses around the Bay Area, people that are joining us online. So glad you're here today. Uh, we're starting a series on hope, and really, our church, every church, is in the hope business. Uh, last week, it was a joy. I was in Seattle, and I got to talk to the church where Scotty Scruggs, who was on staff here for many years, serves while Scotty was here. Those of you at South City, we didn't even have a South City campus when Scotty was on staff, so you did not know him. But everybody who knew Scotty, was it not good to have him back and just be able to welcome him and pray for him? And uh, I told his church in Seattle uh, right about this time last Sunday, I knew that he would be back here making jokes about how amazing it is that I can be preaching at my age. And uh, he was. And I told them how amazed I was that Scotty could be preaching at his height. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking how hard it can be for a church to say goodbye to staff that we love. And Menlo has this amazing history of uh, people who served here and have gone on to serve at other churches like Scotty or Scott Dudley is just down the road from him. A guy named Dan Chun was on our staff years ago, now serves in Hawaii, and Nance and I were with him a couple weeks ago. Jim Candy, um, Charlie Scanlon, Dave Peterson, Joni Tankersley, they're all doing great work for God, and one of the reasons why is you love them and you cared for them, and you poured into them, and that means we get to share in the ministry of hope that they're involved in all around the country and beyond. Also, last week Dave Shields was telling me 907 of you were a part of Serve Your City, caring for under-resourced people, building homes, working with uh, foster dads, elderly folks uh, around the world. A lot of you have been following what's going on in Venezuela, great crisis. And again, because of your generosity, we were simply able to give $40 million. Um, no, wait a minute, not $40 million, $40,000. I, I thought, wow, that's impressive. $40,000 to ministry partners that we work with in Venezuela and Colombia to help the most vulnerable in that crisis. Did I clean that up correctly? I really want to be careful not to miscommunicate on that one. So. Uh, we're in the hope business, and in this first message in this series, I want to talk in a personal way about what the hope of the gospel is, and then invite you to make a decision to take a stand on that ultimate hope. And we've been doing this all weekend long. It's been thrilling as people have made that decision, so this is your chance. I'll start by asking you to reflect for a moment on this question. If somebody were to ask you, what are you hoping for? What would you say? What's the big, the big deal that you're hoping for? Maybe it's at your work, you know, some a promotion or a project or a deal. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe a broken one or one that you don't have. Maybe it's around health or the health of somebody that you love. We're all hopers. When we're little, we hope for parents that will love us and for friends that will care about us. We hope to make the team. We hope to get into a good school and, and make high grades. And then we hope to get out of school with low debt and then... Uh, maybe hope to get into a house. Around here, that's a big hope. And then to get married, maybe to get a spouse in the house. And then a lot of times people will go on to hope to have children. You hope that you get kids into the house. And then once you get kids in the house, you hope you get the kids out of the house. And that can be a big hope too. 
Uh, you hope to get a job, and then you hope to retire from that job, and then what do you hope for? It's a strange thing about us. We outgrow a lot of stuff. Nobody outgrows hope. You never get too old. Nobody can not hope. Now, some eras tend to be more hope-filled than other eras. If you're into U.S. history, you may know about this. After the United States won the War of 1812 against England, there was such a strong sense of purpose and shared national unity that from 1812 to 1825 is actually known to American historians as the era of good feelings. Question, what do you think they'll call this era that we're in right now? When you think about our nation these days, political discourse, gap between wealthy and poor, uh, cultural wholesomeness, unity, everybody pretty optimistic? There's a lot of indications that actually we're facing a shortage of hope for all the wealth we produce. The Center for Disease Control noted that recently we've gone through three years where the average expectancy, life expectancy in the U.S. has declined. That's not happened for more than a century. And it's not because of heart disease and it's not because of cancer. Those deaths are down. Uh, the, the causes of death that are soaring are drug abuse, opioid crisis, alcohol-related deaths, and suicide. And these are being called the diseases of despair. Two economists from Princeton coined that phrase, and it's caught on quite widely. In the last 20 years, fatalities to these causes, what you might think of as despair deaths, have almost tripled. We, our children, are dying of hopelessness. In Western societies, both rates of marriage and uh, birth rates are declining. In, in spite of technology and education, sociologists say this happens when there is a lack of hope. Been a conversation over the last several weeks, a prominent U.S. politician said not long ago that things are so bad for the planet that couples are legitimately questioning if they can have children. So they, is this world one that they ought to bring children into? It's a question of hope. The biggest trend in video, you think about amazing technology stories that we could all tell ourselves, are not stories of heroism or moral beauty or courage, it's zombies. The Walking Dead, the zombie apocalypse, historical zombies, child zombies, animal zombies, including, I kid you not, a movie called Zombievers with the tagline, you'll all be damned, D-A-M-M-E-D. <laughs> That's the stories we want to watch. Johns Hopkins says that depression and anxiety are both up across all ages and up the most between the ages of 12 and 17, 12 years old. Problems like cyberbullying or uh, Facebook social media induced depression didn't even have names a generation ago and now we don't know what to do about it. And then there's another strange dynamic. Of course, one form of disappointment is you hope, hope, hope for something and you never get it. Another source is when you hope for something and you get it, and you realize it's not all that. Tim Keller quoted the New York columnist who had known a lot of people like Sylvester Stallone, Julia Roberts, back when they were obscure, and she said a lot of people come to a place like New York to make it big, and of course most of them don't. 
Few of them would. Few of them would get the success that they were looking for, but it didn't bring the peace that they were hoping for. Here's what she wrote. I thought this was so fascinating. One of the funny things was that after they got famous, if anything, they were more unhappy, angry, and mean than they had been before. Because that giant thing that we're striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to provide them with fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed, they were still them. That's a great line. They were still them. That's their problem. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I've come to believe that if God really wants to play a rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish and then giggles as you realize you want to kill yourself. We're just, we're hard to satisfy. But this actually says something quite profound, I believe, about our identity, about human nature. Great thinker, the Danish Christian philosopher Søren Kierkegaard put it like this, if there were nothing eternal in a man, he could not despair. In other words, if we were just a bundle of appetites and instincts, and a lot of people are convinced that's all we are, a lot of people try to persuade you of that, if that were the case, life would not be the kind of problem it is for us. It would just be the search for survival and pleasure. But we are not just appetites and instincts. We have another kind of longing. Writer said it a long time ago like this, God has set eternity in the heart of man, and it's in you, and you know it. And that's why capitalism and socialism and workaholism and money and success, pleasure, cannot fill something that gnaws at our souls. If there were nothing eternal in a person, they could not despair, but there is, and we do, and you do, in quiet moments. And so the deeper question is, what's my fallback hope? When I don't get the thing I'm really hoping for, when I realize I'm never going to get the thing I'm hoping for, what do I put my hope in? See, hope in, which is what I'm talking about today, is much deeper than hope for. Hope in is an anchor for the soul. It's kind of interesting. There's a famous metaphor, hope is the thing with feathers. One of the biblical writers talks about it quite differently. Hope is what anchors the soul that holds you in a storm. Hope is what keeps you going when you've lost what you were hoping for. Now, the Apostle Paul did not have much to say about hoping for that our world is preoccupied with. The biblical writers rarely wrote from enjoying great circumstances. And they rarely wrote to people who were having great circumstances. And they pretty much never write predicting the imminent arrival of great circumstances. But they have a lot to say about what the human race ought to put its hope in. And the most influential words ever written in the human language about hope are from Paul's letters, first letter to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15. And he starts by summarizing uh, the gospel, good news that you can put your hope in. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, 
I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. Paul here is summarizing this good news. And he says, you've taken your stand on it. We'll come back to that language because I want to invite you to do that today. But first, I want to give you two big reasons for taking your stand on or putting your hope in the gospel of Jesus. And the first one is that this good news, this gospel is historical. It really happened. There was a man named Jesus, and he lived like nobody had ever lived. He taught like nobody had ever taught. People couldn't forget him. They couldn't resist him. They couldn't understand him. They couldn't get him out of their minds. He never wrote a book, but more books have been written about him than anybody that ever lived. He never posed for a painting, and yet his face is the most recognizable face in the world. Nobody's a close second. He died on a cross, a failure, a reject, and yet he chose to die. He embraced his death, even though nobody else understood why. And when he died, in that moment, on that day, his movement was completely and utterly finished until three days later when it was not. Something happened that resurrected that movement, and his followers insisted that what resurrected the movement was the resurrection of Jesus, of the Messiah. And that cross, which had been uh, up until that time uh, at Rome's purpose, just a symbol of failure and humiliation and execution, became instead the world's greatest symbol of hope, adorns more graves with the hope of resurrection than any other symbol. Here's how Paul describes this in a passage that's unique in ancient literature. Paul says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that little phrase again. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brothers, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Now, uh, historians generally agree that Paul wrote these words within about 20 years of the death of Jesus, so within a generation. And Paul deliberately lists the names. Cephas, Simon Peter, saw Jesus after the resurrection. The disciples did. There were 500 men and women. Some of them are dead now in the last 20 years, but most of them still alive. And the point of all of this is very clear. If you don't believe me, Paul is right, you can go and talk to any one of them which he would not have said that close to the resurrection if people could not actually do that. In other words, whatever you think about it, the resurrection was not intended by Paul or any of those folks to be understood as a metaphor or a symbol. It was not poetical. It is historical. It happened. It is the only explanation for how in the world did a church get started after a Messiah got crucified. And the resurrection then means that you can put your ultimate hope in God. And here's how Paul expresses that. People would have kind of picked this up. He said, Jesus died for our sins on the third day according to the scripture, and then he was resurrected on the third day according to the scripture. Why does he have that little phrase in there twice? Well, he's saying uh, we're part of a great story, that, that there is such a thing as history. There is a grand narrative that means something. And when he says Jesus was resurrected on the third day, that's an important part of that story. In the Old Testament scriptures, God was understood to be a God of deliverance, a God who hears and cares and acts. And very often in stories, he would deliver, save, rescue, heal on the third day. 
So there's a pregnant day. Trouble comes, trouble lasts. And then on the third day, just a few examples of this. In Genesis chapter 42, Joseph's brothers get put in prison, but they're released on the third day. In Joshua, the second chapter, Israelite spies are told by Rahab to hide out, but they will be rescued on the third day. In the book of Esther, she hears her people are going to be killed by this genocidal maniac, and she fasts and prays, and then is received favorably by the king on the third day. Abraham is afraid he's going to lose his son Isaac, but he sees the sacrifice that will save his son Isaac on the third day. Over and over, God is a God of deliverance, a God of salvation, and it happens on the third day. Everybody knows about the third day. So Jesus says he's going to be crucified, but then he says, I'm going to be resurrected, and it's going to happen, guess on what day? He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. Jonah's another third day story. God rescues. So the Son of Man, Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Pause here for one second, because I've had this question before. Some folks will look at this and say, hey, if Jesus died on a Friday, but rose on a Sunday, he was only in the tomb for two nights, so Jesus was wrong. So here's the deal. Even in our day, um, we will count time in different ways, depending on your perspective. Uh, for example, imagine a pastor's wife with three small children who are lots of work, her husband, who is normally a huge help around the house. This is a purely hypothetical example. Her husband has to go on a trip. He leaves early on a Friday morning, and he returns late on a Sunday night, and she says, you've been gone three days. And he says, no, 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 no. I saw you Friday morning. I'm seeing you again Sunday night. I was only gone one day Saturday. She says, you were gone three days. He says, I was gone one day. Who's right? She's right. Why? She is always right. That's exactly right. Um, so back in the uh, uh, Hebrew counting system, it was an inclusive system. They would count every day that was part of an event. So this is Jesus' way of saying that the third day, the resurrection would be the hinge on which human history would turn. So this is this is the hope of the human race. Now, you might not believe that, understand that, might be just investigating all of that, but it is kind of interesting that we now divide human history up into what happened B.C., before Christ, and A.D., after death, Anno Domino, the year of our Lord. It's actually happened. Now, this leads to the other reason to put your hope in the gospel. You know, the problem with the human race is they were still them. They got what they were hoping for, but they were still them. On the third day, he died on the cross for our sins, according to the scripture. This is real personal. And here's what Paul writes, and you might think about Paul as just a, you know, kind of a writing, preaching machine or something. This is real personal for him. Paul writes, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles. Do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, God's people, Jesus' friends. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. It's very poignant. Paul uses... Uh, a, a little phrase. It's actually a single word translated abnormally born. It's a very odd word. It's a Greek word, ectoma. It's only used one time in all scripture. 
And it's a word that they would use for an aborted fetus, which was a common practice in the ancient Roman world until the church came along and remember they followed a Jesus that just loved little babies and said, no, we're not going to do that. And you know how we'll use sometimes just images, nicknames, words for somebody that we want to mock. Paul talks elsewhere about how people would say that his physical presence was weak or contemptible. They'd say his letters were impressive, but not him in person. He wrote to the church at Galatia once, and he said, in spite of his illness or deformity, it could be either way, they did not treat him with contempt or scorn. The Greek name that he took, Paulus, actually meant little one. And it's possible that he suffered from something like dwarfism. It is suggested that this word ectroma was actually a term of contempt that his critics would use to mock Paul. But he turns it around here as a way to praise God's grace to even me, an ectroma like me, a living abortion like me, messed up, goofed up, unimpressive, sinful, guilty, separated from God, did horrible things, killed Jesus' friends. He died for my sins. By the grace of God, now this is grace, whoever you are, whatever you've done. I have a friend named Hans who had a little six-year-old son named Isaac. And normally when Isaac did something wrong and had it coming, he would get punished by Hans. But every once in a while, because Hans followed Jesus and wanted his little son to understand grace, to know grace, to love grace, every once in a while, Isaac would do something wrong and Isaac would know that punishment was coming, but Hans would look at him and say, Isaac, I'm not going to punish you today. I'm going to cut you some grace. Do you know why I'm going to do that? And Isaac would shake his head no, and Hans would say, no reason at all. There is never a reason for grace. One time, Isaac had done something really bad. He was like six years old and just been diabolical. And Hans was furious. And Isaac knew that something really bad was coming and looked up at his dad, as only a six-year-old boy can do, and said, Dad, would you cut me some grace? And Hans was so furious that he said, without thinking, as parents will sometimes do, Isaac, give me one good reason why I should cut you some grace. And Isaac said, Dad, there's never a reason for grace. That's the truth about grace. God offers us forgiveness as a gift of grace, salvation as a gift of grace, eternal life with God as a gift of grace. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised on the third day. This is the gospel. So now we come to this great crossroads to which everybody comes. And the question is, how do you respond to the gospel? I'm not asking today, what circumstance are you hoping for? A lot of people, they just live from that, from one moment to the next moment to the next moment. But if the eternal was not in us, we could not despair. I'm asking today, not what are you hoping for, what will you hope in? You can live, if you want, for your achievements and your accomplishments or your security or your possessions or your job or your money.
You can do that. I was talking with a friend recently who uses kind of a code with a buddy of his for all of that stuff that we get all amped up about, and, and that is a trash can. And, and they'll just remind each other, even if something that they're really excited about comes along, it's going in the trash can one day. So I have some visual expressions of this. This is a house. Everybody wants to get in a house, especially where we live, housing prices. When I moved out of here to the Midwest, I could not believe how much a house costs, and it's just going crazy. There's some amazing houses around. And we'll talk about not just a house, but a dream house is what I dream about. Every single house, nicest, biggest, newest house, it's going in the trash can. There's amazing cars out here. I grew up in Rockford, Illinois. People drive cars around here I'd never even heard of when I was growing up back there. Amazing names, amazing engines, go so fast, socially, so cool. Not a bad thing to have a really cool car. Just good to remember, it's going in the trash can. This is a diploma. There's amazing diplomas you can get around here. There's unbelievable institutions you can go to, and people really want to get into them and want their kids to get into them. We're reading these days, aren't we, how badly people want to get one of these diplomas from just the right place. Not bad to get one of these. Just good to remember, it's going to end up there. And then... And then there's money. Oh my gosh, the money that this area generates. And this is real money, by the way, in case you're wondering. This is not monopoly. Like, I actually had our finance department get a wad of actual money so you could see it. This is real money. Not bad to have money, but it's going to end up in the trash can. That's the way it is. <laughs> Everything that we long for, live for, just leave it out here so you can enjoy it a little longer if you kind of wonder. Paul had this fascinating statement that he made to his young friend Timothy. Command those who are rich in this world. Hmm, wonder who those are. Not to put their hope in riches which are so uncertain. Really? This is uncertain? Really? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But to put their hope in God. Hope in. So, you can live for what is temporal. That is, live for yourself. Live for what's going to end up in there. Or you can live for God. You can live for what is eternal. You can become a follower of Jesus. Experience the grace of God, forgiveness of sins, the hope of life with God forever beyond death. And Paul's description of this decision is what he talks about with the folks at Corinth. He says that this is the gospel on which you have taken your stand. And the idea is, just as with my body, uh, I'm standing on a foundation. It's the same with my eternal existence, with my inner being, with my soul. I've got to take a stand on something. We are that way. God has placed eternity in the hearts of human beings. So what have you taken a stand for? We all kind of understand this. I've done many, many weddings. I've never done a wedding where the groom said, yeah, I will marry her, but I would like to remain seated. I'm afraid if we got married standing up, everybody would look at us. That's kind of the point. When you make a vow, when you pledge your faith, you take a stand on which you've taken your stand. And this changes a life forever. And I want to invite you to do this today. People have been doing it at every services this weekend. 
I wanted you to be able to see a real-life case. So this is a bit of a story of a woman named Kristen Jansen who recently committed her life to Jesus at our church uh, and is going to get baptized in a couple of weeks. So take a look at her story. After I finished college, I felt sort of lost, like I have accomplished this goal that my, I thought my whole life's existence was for. And now I just felt this, this emptiness and this why inside of me. I just couldn't break out of this cruel prison that my brain had created that was constantly telling me that I'm not enough. this couple, I call them my California grandparents. After I moved here to California, they invited me to church and they welcomed me into their family. And that was how I started coming to Menlo. It was really the first time that I attended a church where I felt like I connected with both my head and my heart, but I still had so many doubts. I even joined a small group. They welcomed me in. Um, I told them from the beginning, I don't fundamentally believe the same things. And yet they still welcomed me into, the, into their lives and invited me to share my life with them. All of these objections I had were suddenly being torn down. I was in a meeting earlier this year and I had the same familiar tapes playing in my head that were telling me, be careful what you say, don't say the wrong thing, they're gonna think you're stupid. I just had this feeling come over me that said, you are loved, those are lies. Suddenly my heart understood something that my brain could never wrap itself around and it was the first time that I really felt God's love. Ever since I had that feeling, it stayed with me this whole time. Who I was and my worth as a human didn't depend on how much I knew. It was just that I am loved because of who I am and because of who God is. There has always been a longing in my heart for learning more, for searching, for seeking. Over the last couple months, as God's just been revealing who He is to me, I have come to learn how his love is so inclusive. This is what I want my life to be modeled after, and I feel ready to declare that to my community, and that's why I feel ready now to take the step to be baptized. I'm so thankful for my best friend who has been there uh, throughout my whole life. I'm thankful for my California grandparents who came into my life at this time when I was just feeling so hopeless and so lost and helped point me to God. I'm thankful for my small group, how they welcomed me. I feel God's love. I can't deny anymore his presence in my life and that this is the path that he's leading me on. Isn't that a fabulous story? And I'm so glad and grateful for her. I love that life group that said, you know, you just come be a part of that. We love you. We care. We doesn't matter what you believe. Or that couple, that was Bob and Sue Leaf, that were her California grandparents. And uh, there's a whole story around that one. I think about when Nancy and I met her at an event one time, and she was talking about coming to this church and just wanted us to know, you know, I have doubts. I don't believe everything that you guys believe. And Nancy said, you know, you can have a lot of doubts and have faith. 
and, and maybe that's you right now. And you wonder, how much faith can I have? And, and Jesus said, you know, mustard seed will do it. That's a real small amount. Your doubts may be real big, and your faith may be real small. That's okay with Jesus. Because here's the thing about hope. It doesn't matter how big your hope is. It matters what you put your hope in. You may have lots and lots of hopes, but if they're all going to end up in here, it won't help you much. So this is kind of your moment. And I just want to invite anybody who has not taken a stand before. And you know God is prompting you right now, and your heart's kind of pumping. But you understood Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and you want to belong to him, and, and you want that to move from just ideas in your head to your heart in the deepest place. This is kind of your moment. And I'm going to say a prayer, and I'm going to invite you, if you have never committed your life to Jesus clearly before, if you have not received the gospel, if you have not put your hope in God before, this is kind of why we're here as a church, to enable people to do this. And I'm going to invite you to stand up as an expression of that commitment, to say with your body what you're saying with the heart, God, I'm going to take my stand with you from now on and make this your defining moment. Say, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. It's not going to be about the house. It's not going to be about the money. It's going to be about you. So let's pray. I'm going to ask everybody right now, would you bow your head, close your eyes? This is just between each person and God. And now this is your moment. If you have never clearly committed your life to Jesus, never received the grace of the gospel before, and you want to do that now today, you want to say real clearly, God, I'm done living for myself, depending on myself. I'm trusting you. I'm committing my life to you. I'm putting my hope in you. If that's you, I want to invite you to stand up right now to declare with your physical body the intent of your heart and your eternal being. So right now, you just stand up and tell God as a way of telling God, God, I want to belong to you. I want to know for sure. I want to commit my life to Christ. I want to put my hope in the gospel. Yep, God sees you. God knows exactly. Yep. Yep, God sees, God knows. It's such a thrilling thing. There is no more important decision in the world than that determination to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Anybody else, if you want to, just stand up. And I'm going to say the words of a prayer. If you're standing, if this is your intent, you just pray these in your heart along with me. Yep. Yep. Yep, God sees you, man. God bless you. I'm so excited for you. God, I confess my sin, my mess-ups, my need for you. This day, God, as I stand before you in this room, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and to give me a fresh start. Make me your child. I declare my decision to make Jesus my friend and my leader 
and my guide and my forgiver from this day forward throughout my life on this earth and then with you forever as you help me this day I take my stand God I thank you for everybody who is standing right now I thank you for their decision to say that they're going to follow you and I pray that you pour out great blessings on them I pray God that you will lead them now to just the right people to just the right resources that you would whisper your love and your delight in them and that for the rest of their lives anytime there's something that happens that that makes them unsettled or uncertain or doubting or afraid they would remember they have taken their stand God bless them we all pray this together and ask this and celebrate in Jesus name amen and you all can take a seat. And everybody else, would you just celebrate the decision that these folks have made today? Because it's the coolest thing in the world. And I want to say uh, to those of you who have made this decision, I'm so glad for you. And you may have walked into this room without a hope, but you're not walking out of this room without a hope. You have a hope that we'll be with, we'll be with you until the day you die and then beyond. And we cheer you on. We are your spiritual family. You have a new life before you. And if you've never been baptized before, Easter Sunday would be a great time to do that. We're celebrating baptisms, and we love to cheer you on on that day. And if you haven't had a little kind of family to walk alongside you, we'd love to help you get into a life group of people that could love you and, and walk alongside you. And then for everybody, come on back next week. We're going to talk about hope in the face of disappointment. That's going to be a very special message. And uh, I'm going to be here to kind of welcome that message. And, and you're all going to want to be a part of that. But now we're going to express our praise to the God who is the one in whom we hope. So worship him.